Hello, everybody. This is Kent Hammond with uh, FaithCast University. A couple of announcements to make before I get into the show today. Um, first of all, I've changed the name of the show. As most of you know, I've been going with the name College Faith Radio, but I decided that name sounds a little bit too retro for me, so I decided to come up with a name that more entails the direction that I'm trying to go with the show since I'm a college student and since my target audience is mainly college students, I've decided to create a name for the show that would encapsulate that. So I came up with FaithCast University, Podcasting for the Faith on behalf of college students is, is, uh, is what I'm trying to go for. So I hope you like the new name. I hope you're enjoying the show so far, uh, no matter what its name is. And I suppose I will get right into the content. Um, <clears throat> today is going to be sort of a, a variety show. And my show is always a variety show where I just have one subject one week and another subject the next week. But today I'm going to touch on a few different subjects. And each segment will sort of have its own own subject matter completely different from the last. So this is not going to be what how I usually do things, where I have one continuous subject throughout an entire show. Um, today, each, each segment of the show will, at least I'm planning, will have its own, uh, have its own subject matter. And the first subject I'm going to touch on today is the idea of the immortal soul. You know, as you guys know, I plan on doing a major series on hell, on the eternal torment doctrine come this summer. I plan to do a six to eight show series. So it's going to be a month and a half, two month long series where I pick apart the doctrines for eternal torment and show that eternal torment is actually not biblical and that the final fate of the wicked is destruction. It is death. I've made a, yeah, I already made a show about that a couple weeks ago as sort of a prelude. And I guess you could say this segment's going to be another prelude. Because right now I'm going to talk about another doctrine that has a lot to do with the, the hell theory. Now, as you know, I believe eternal torment to be false. But the eternal torment theory didn't come into existence all upon its own. It actually comes from another theory. 
another doctrine that is taught almost universally in today's churches. And that's the doctrine of the immortal soul. Now, you've heard your pastor say this. You've heard your church leaders say this. You've heard your Christian friends say that you have this essence called a soul that's going to live forever no matter what. And your pastor has said things to you countless times like, you're going to spend eternity somewhere. You just must choose where, heaven or hell, right? You know, things like this. The, the, when you die, the body gets separated from the soul, but the soul lives on. You've heard that too. It's assumed in almost every Christian church in America that we have this undying soul, this soul that is just indestructible and cannot be killed. But much like the eternal torment doctrine, this doctrine is completely false. And when I say it's false, I mean it's it's made up. It's fairy tale. I mean, there isn't, you know, when you look at the eternal torment doctrine, at least with eternal torment, you can, you know, they they at least have a couple of scriptures that they can turn to with which to come to a reasonable conclusion that eternal torment might be possible, okay? But with the immortal soul doctrine, there is just nothing there. I mean, you can search scripture from head to toe, front to end, front to back, and you won't find a single scripture that comes even remotely, that comes anywhere, anywhere, even getting anywhere near lending itself to the idea that mankind has an immortal soul. It's not there, and it's not true. As a matter of fact, when the Bible does talk about the soul with reference to mortality or immortality, it states very clearly that the soul can and will die. I mean, Ezekiel 18.14 directly states, for the soul that sins, it will die. Uh couple of more scriptures to get to here. 1 Peter one twenty three, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. I'm going to go through a couple of more scriptures here, but I, I'm not going to go through a whole lot of them because I feel like you can search the Bible yourself out on this matter. But I'm going to tell you this. The in the Old Testament, okay, the Hebrew word for soul appears over seven hundred and fifty times. And in the New Testament, the Greek word for soul appears over a hundred times. Okay, so you have eight hundred and fifty references to the human soul in Scripture. And yet not a one of them say anything about the soul being immortal. Not one. The few that do reference the whether or not the soul can die state very plainly that the soul can die and will die. All right, so the 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 immortal soul doctrine is just like I said, it's made up. It's just it's something that 
was basically pulled out of thin air, and it does not come from the Bible at all. So, oh, Matthew 10, 28. I want to throw one more scripture out here. Matthew 10, 28, and this is pretty, pretty plain. Fear not those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Okay? Kind of hard to destroy a soul the same way you destroy a body if the soul is its in itself indestructible, right? All right, so there isn't really a whole lot of scriptures that talk about whether or not the soul is immortal or not, but the few scriptures that do plainly states that the soul can and will die. All right, and again, with over 800 references to the soul, and not a single one of them even coming remotely close to uh, ta- teaching the immortality of it, we can, we can pretty much rest assured that this doctrine does not come from Scripture. Now, I will say this. Adam and Eve were born with an immortal soul, okay? When they were in the garden, both their souls and their bodies were immortal. But they sinned. Death entered the world and entered them. And then they became perishable and mortal, with the soul becoming every bit as perishable and mortal as the body. If that were not the case, God would have said something right then and there, right? He would have said, well, your soul is going to go on forever, but your body will die or something. And you don't see that, okay? And you don't see that anywhere in Scripture. So the question then becomes, where did this doctrine come from? How did this doctrine get into the church, and how, how is it that it's taught up until this day if there isn't a word about it literally in Scripture? Well, as I've stated before, those of you who know me know that I do not call myself a Christian. I call myself a follower of Jesus, okay? Because I believe Christianity as a whole not to be a biblical faith. I believe Christianity to be a faith that mixes biblical teachings with with ancient Greek and pagan teachings. The doctrine of the immortal soul is a very, very clear example of this. It's another one of those uh, doctrines like Calvinism and eternal torment that were brought into the church by a guy named St. Augustine. Augustine was from the 3rd century. You heard me talk about him before. Augustine was and still is incredibly influential on on Christianity, even among Christians who have no idea who he is. But the immortal soul doctrine is one of those things that he brought into the church from the outside. Because the Greek philosophers that he, he looked up to in his previous religion taught it, okay? They taught that the soul could never die. And so when you die, you have this immortal soul. Death was like a thing to be celebrated because death was seen to be a release from your evil body in Greek culture. And then you could just live on as the soul, and the soul is supposed to be the good part of you. Now, I'm not explaining that exactly in depth or correctly, but that's basically the gist of it. This helped lay the groundwork for eternal torment. The Greeks came to, you know, the Greeks invented the concept of eternal torment, and they did it through the immortal soul theory. 
The Greeks, just like every other religion in the world, believes in some kind of punishment for in the afterlife for evildoers. Okay? And since the Greeks believe that the soul lives on forever once it leaves the body, they put two and two together, knowing that sinners get punished in the afterlife and knowing that the soul lives forever, you, you know, they just put two and two together and lo and behold, you have sinners being tortured forever and ever in a place called uh, hell, but the Greeks, I believe, called it something else. And that's how the eternal torment theory came to be. August th Augustine brought the immortal soul theory and the subsequent eternal tor torment theory into the church with him. And it's stuck ever since. And, um, you know, it creates a lot of confusion because when people read the Bible, you know, they don't realize, I mean, they just read like immortal soul and eternal torment into it. And the Bible would make a lot more sense if people could just like drop that and just read the Bible for what it actually says. The Bible is a, you know, the thing about the Bible, a lot of people don't understand it. Christians have a way of complicating the crap out of Scripture, of making things a lot more complicated than what, what they really are. And part of how they do that is with this eternal torment, immortal soul theory, which creates all kinds of other crazy teachings, like um, death is not really death, it's quote-unquote separation from God. and you know, So now death is no longer looked as, as death anymore, and there's just a lot of other teachings that stem from this. So when, when a Christian reads the Bible, he's relatively confused about a lot of things and how to put a lot of things together. And this doesn't just apply to the immortal soul theory or the health theory. I mean, Christians complicate, Christian leaders complicate the crap out of a lot of things. I've seen John Piper do an entire two-hour sermons on, like, one passage of Scripture. You know, he just, like, adds so many things to things that just aren't even there and aren't even part of the scripture or the context you know it complicates the heck out of everything and it's, it's just a you know it's not a good thing but if one reads the bible plainly if one can get all that stuff out of their head the bible makes a lot more sense the bible is a simplistic book people don't realize that it's deep in its emotion and in its message but it's not exactly intellectually um, difficult, okay? It's not like reading a, a law dissertation or a paper written by some scholar at Harvard. You know, it's if you just allow it to speak to you in the plain English, if you have a Bible and that's written in plain, plain English, like a modern Bible, the message, if you just allow yourself to sort of take it in, is extremely easy to understand. Jesus himself said that the gospel message is so easy that a child could understand it. Okay? So, this isn't complicated stuff here, but we make it complicated because we add all kinds of things to Scripture that aren't there, like eternal torment and immortal soul. And it screws up our understanding of not only Scriptures that deal with the afterlife, but other Scriptures. Because other Scriptures don't make a whole lot of sense, you know, 
with the immortal soul theory and the eternal torment theory in play. So they have to change like the meaning of other scriptures to fit in with their, their little theories about the immortal soul and eternal torment. You, now you've turned the Bible into this extra super complicated book that nobody can understand. And that's not what the Bible was meant to be. That's not, that, that's not what the gospel was meant to be. Jesus told parables. He didn't tell tongue twisters. Jesus was not outright trying to confuse people. He told parables in a way in which people who didn't want to understand wouldn't, but people who wanted to could pick up what he was saying right away. Okay? But Jesus didn't... I mean, if you read his words, there's nothing complicated about them. It's just the stuff we read into his words that make it complicated. You know? The same with reading not just the words of Jesus, but like the words of Paul or Peter or anybody else. If you just read them in plain English and let them speak to you in just the plain English that they're currently written in, a lot of times, if you can get all of the stuff that pastors and stuff have taught you out of your head, a lot of times it's going to hit you like, whoa, duh, this is just plainly saying that the wages of sin is death. Wow. And here I was thinking spiritual death and souls living forever and this and that. No, you know, that's, that's not it. I hate intellectualist preachers. But I understand that most preachers aren't necessarily trying to confuse people on purpose. They, they're just, uh, they've been taught all these, you know, they're susceptible, they're human too, and they've been taught all these sort of ridiculous doctrines and interpretations that, you know, so when they open up their Bible, they can't read it plainly for what it says either because they've, they have a lifetime of being indoctrinated with all this stuff. There are parts of the Bible that are hard, if not impossible, to understand. I mean, most of the book of Revelation fits that theory. But the book of Revelation was written purposely so that you couldn't make exact sense out of it. All right? The book of Revelation was written so that we wouldn't really know exactly what it was saying until the time, Revelation's time, was upon us. All right? So God purposely wrote that to be confusing to all, yet to be legible enough to where we could see the signs of the end of times when, when they started to show up. Okay, But the rest of the scripture, I mean, what did Jesus say? The Pharisee asked him, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty simple. There's nothing complicated about that. In the Bible, especially in the New Testament, pretty much just commands those same terms over and over again in, in different situations. Almost everything that the Apostle Paul commands people to do in his letters is some variation of those first two commandments applied to what, what current church situations were going on at the time when Paul was writing his letters. Gotten a little off track here. But either way, the immortal soul theory, I mean, I challenge you, anybody, 
to come up with even a single scripture that can even remotely be twisted to say that every man is born with this immortal, never-dying soul. And you're not going to find anything that comes even close to it. It's made up, it was pulled out of thin air by the Greeks, who tended to make up their own gods and their own theories. And it was brought into church by the Greek converts. All right, so that's why it's here. But your soul can and will die when you die. And it will not be resurrected until the final judgment day when Jesus comes back. It's at this point that your soul will be cloaked with immortality, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, and that you will get a new body, an immortal body to go with it. Okay? <clears throat> but before that, every single one of us in soul and body is completely and totally mortal. Well, that's all I have to say on this subject for now. I'm going to go take a break here for a minute. What do I want to play on this break here? I played some snow earlier. Um, let's see, Enrique Iglesias. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the reggae plan today. Here's some uh, Shaba ranks, I believe. Oh, 
This is Kent Hammond back with uh, FaithCast University. We were talking about the immortal soul theory uh, in the last segment. You know, like I said, I'm in a weird mood today, so I feel like jumping around from subject to subject, and I'm going to go for another controversial subject here. Lust. Sexual attraction. And the reason I'm doing this is because there's a passage. I'm, I'm, we've all heard the passage in Matthew 5.28. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, he who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm telling you, that passage used to annoy the crap out of me. And I know it annoys most of my listeners too. And there's two reasons that that passage annoyed me. The first reason is, especially when I was a teenager, you know, I did quite a bit of lusting and I simply wanted to do that and I don't see why I can't do that. You know what I mean? So there was that selfish motivation. But there's also another another reason that scripture drove me nuts. And that's simply that I couldn't make sense out of it. It just seems so out of place. You know, I... I uh, looking at a pretty woman walking by and, um, you know, gazing at her for a little bit. I'm not talking about a long time, not creepy gazing, but gazing at her for, you know, a little bit. I can't, I, you know, I just can't, couldn't figure out why God would call that a sin, much less, much less adultery, okay? Why would Jesus say something like this? It's craziness, you know. I, I was just, I tried not to, you know, I tried not to think about it too much, but this scripture always came to my mind. And like I said, it had nothing to do, I shouldn't say it had nothing to do, but it didn't really have a lot to do with the fact that I was, you know, sexually attracted to a lot of women. It, I've always been one of those guys who, if something doesn't make sense to me, I want to, you know, I want to crack that code. I want to solve that puzzle. And so I'm searching scriptures. And I really can't find another scripture to sort of coincide with that scripture. So I'm just like, I, I'm just le I was left in the dark, you know. I was just like, I'm looking at God and I'm thinking, so Lord, you tell me that I mean, you create me with 
literally trillions of hormones in the pit of my stomach that are designed specifically to react to beauty in the opposite sex. But you're telling me that, uh, at the same time, you're telling me that enjoying that reaction is, is a sin. Not only is, is it a sin, it's adultery. Well, that made me mad, but it also, like I said, it may be confused. But I would sort of on and off search this scripture. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I had other things to do. I couldn't dedicate all my time to, you know, figuring this out. But at a certain point, I, I don't remember exactly when, but at a certain point, some common sense kicked in. And I realized this must have been a bad translation of scripture in Matthew 5.28 because first off, okay, if you are looking at a your pretty woman walks by on a college campus or on a beach or whatever, it cannot possibly be adultery to just throw your gaze at her. Especially if she, she's a single woman. And the reason for that, even if you're thinking of her in a sexual manner, right? And the reason that this is not adultery is because if she's a single woman, it's not even adultery if you actually end up having sex with her, okay? It might be a different type of sin, but nobody's going to call two single people having sex adultery, right? Because in order for there to be adultery, marriage has to be involved. One or both of the parties involved have to be married. So two single people getting together and having sex, definitely not adultery. So if it's not adultery to have sex with that pretty girl you see walking the street or wherever it is, how in the world is it adultery to just think about it? Makes no sense, does it? That was my first clue that something was a little bit off with the, the way that, tri that scripture has been written in English and translated and stuff. But it would be a while before I could uh, investigate the matter further. Around 2009, 2010, something like that, that's when smartphones started to hit the market, and I was lucky enough to get my hands on a smartphone, even though I was a homeless guy at the time. <clears throat> and this afforded me the opportunity to look into this matter further. Now I'm about to set a lot of people free if, if, they're, if my listeners are willing to accept what I'm about to say. If you have your Bible in front of you, turn to Matthew 5.28. Okay? I'm going to give you a second to do that. He turned to Matthew 5.28. I'm going to read this scripture right along with you. Okay? I'm going to be going into the Holman Christian Standard, and actually I'm going to read along right with you myself. 
All right, so we're actually going to start with Matthew 5.27. I forgot that this was a two-part verse, but here we go. Here's Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, that's pretty condemning. And you think about every woman you've ever thought about sexually or even noticed her like backside or whatever, and you're just like, wow, I've done all this sinning. And If you're a teenage guy, I'm glad I'm past my teenage years, because if you're a teenage guy, you're just like beating your head against the wall trying not to lust, because when you're that age, you notice every single bit of beauty that goes by you. The opposites, A member of the opposite sex can't flip her hair or move her lips without you, like, responding in a sort of, without some part of you responding in a, I don't want to say an excited way, but like, uh, I don't know what the right word for it. Let's just say positively. Responding in a way which shows that you approve of whatever she's doing. Okay? And I know how it is. I was that age, you know what I mean? So every move a female makes at that age the way she walks, talks, you know, the way she friggin' twiddles her thumbs can be sexy. You know what I mean? And so you read a verse like this, and you're like, wow, I've committed like thousands of sins every day, lusting for all these women. Guys have been driven to damn near to the point of suicide over this, over this verse. Do you realize that? Because they try so hard to like, control their lust. You know, young guys running around a college campus are trying to very hard not to notice the, all the beautiful women around them, which is absolutely impossible because you have hormones and they're designed to be attracted to the opposite sex. And there's plenty of beautiful girls running around. Of course, at the college campus I, I go to, the girls don't make it any easier for the guys. I mean, during the more warmer days, <clears throat> girls nowadays wear shorts that literally show off half their ass. And I don't mean tight shorts where you can see the shape of their ass. I'm talking about short shorts that literally you can see half of their entire ass. Which, I, honestly, I find to be a little bit disgusting. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I'm attracted to women like the next guy, but there's something about that particular style of dress that I don't know if it's the old school in me, but I just don't, I don't know. I, I, I just don't get with that. But anyway, guys are going to be attracted to that, okay? And so, especially when you're a teenager. So Mr. College Campus guy is running around. He's 19 years old. And he's beating himself up because he's continuing to do what in his mind is lusting and sinning against the Lord because he just can't bring himself to be not attracted to women, right? Eventually, this explodes in his face. He's got all this pent-up sexual frustration. And he ends up with a porn addiction because eventually he just, like... He explodes, and that's the way it goes. I mean, I'm telling you right now, that's exactly how 
90% of Christian guys who have porn addictions, that's how they get them. They try so hard not to like think sexual and romantic thoughts, which is impossible because God gave you all these hormones. And they think they're losing this battle, so they finally just give up. And then they, you know, they do something crazy like start, start to watch a lot of porn. I guess I was pretty lucky in that sense. I, I, part of it, I never got into that part of it because I never completely bought this passage as it was written. And another another thing is I was never that much into porn. I mean, I was always attracted to women, but you know, in porn you don't just see women; you see naked dudes too. And I, I was never big on that. You know what I mean? I, I just I, I never got a thrill out of watching other people like have sex. You know what I mean? Even when I was a secular man. That just wasn't my cup of tea. Anyway, back to this passage of Scripture. Okay. As you guys know, I did some investigating. And it turns out this Scripture is, in fact, poorly translated in English. I don't know whether this was done on purpose or not, but it really doesn't matter. I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in her heart. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The Greek word for lust here is a word called epithumeo. And it means to covet. Okay? It means to covet. The word does not have a sexual connotation by itself. But obviously, it's referencing sexual stuff here. Still, lust in itself is just sexual desire, right? But covet is looking with intent to take or, or you could say strong desire to take. Okay? So, we could read this passage, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman with, strong with intent to take or strong desire to take, take, for, take her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What this means is if you start plotting and planning and scheming, that's where you've gone too far. Okay? Now, I'm let you in on another little secret. Everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her. Here's where it gets interesting. There is no Greek word for, the, for wife. Or at least there wasn't back in those days. There's a Greek word. The Greek word for woman here is gun. Like the barrel of a gun, but it's spelled with an H. So G-U-N-H. Okay? Since Greeks don't have a, an official term for wife, this word gun can mean woman or wife. <coughs> It usually does mean wife when talking about things in a marriage context. Okay? Now this verse is, con is condemning adultery. Alright? You've heard it said, Do not commit adultery, but I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, we know the word lust is covet, which is look with intent to take, or strong intent or strong desire to take, what, however you want to word it. 
either you're intended, you're plotting and you're plotting on stealing her from someone else, or you're you would if you could type of thing. Okay. But this word woman is supposed to say wife. Now let's reread this again with the actual Greek terms written and how they were supposed to be translated. You have heard it said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that everybody who looks at another man's wife to covet her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Doesn't that make a lot more sense? And the word woman has to mean wife here because adultery, like I said, can only be committed among the married, okay? One person in an adulterous situation, at least one person has to be married, okay? So God is telling people basically not to covet other people's wives. That's all Jesus is saying here. This is not a condemnation on men or women, for that matter, noticing the beauty of the opposite sex. Nor is it a condemnation even on thinking sexual thoughts about a particular member of the opposite sex. The context here is adultery. Okay? This verse is aimed at the married, and it's not aimed at anybody else. Or, I mean, it's aimed at people who might plot on married women. Adultery was considered a serious sin, which is why the next verse says, if your white eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Okay? When I found all this out, My first, my first thought was like, oh, this is awesome. I can just sit there and look at all the women I want to. But then I realized that's not really the case. You know what I mean? You have some freedom with regard to your sexual and romantic hormones here. But obviously you're not just supposed to stare at women and you're not supposed to just be like lusting after women all day. You know what I mean? The Bible speaks against promiscuity too. So... You know, you have to sort of control your, your urges, I guess. Now, like I said, it's easier for me than it is for a teenager, but still, there has to be a, a, a good degree of self-control, all right? But at the same time, those times that you notice those pretty college girls on the beach or girl ladies, you notice some good-looking guys with, with their shirts off playing volleyball and you enjoy the scenery for a while, Guess what? You didn't sin. And this verse does not say you did. I want to let that sink in for a minute. The, the, the verse here, if you read it in the Greek, simply condemns people from coveting, which is looking with intent to take, other people's wives. Simple as that. So this scripture was that's caused so much, so many men, so much stress, isn't even translated properly. 
It's amazing how that can happen. Change one dot or chittle of, chittle of the uh, Bible, and you've got a recipe for disaster here. How many men have driven themselves crazy trying not to lust because of this scripture when they really could have just relaxed a little, a little bit? All right, well, I, that's about all I had to say about that for this particular episode. I'm going to take another break, and then I'm not really sure what I'm going to talk about afterwards, but it's not going to be too long because this show has gone on longer than what I, what I thought it was going to. But I will come back, and we will talk. Kent Hammond, FaithCast University.
Hey everybody, Kent Hammond back with uh, Faithcast University. Going to spend this final segment talking about myself. And the reason being is I have a potentially serious uh, situation on my hands with regards to my health. I've had a lump on my left nostril, under my left nostril, where like the bridge of the left nostril is, for about three months. And I've noticed it there and I've checked on it from time to time. This lump has not gone away. Upon close examination of the lump, it has some some of the symptoms of it that are related to skin cancer okay it has its own blood vessels it's dented in the middle and there's a couple of other things that uh let me know that th this is a potentially cancerous uh cancerous lump It's a scary thing for me because, as I've, I've said in past episodes, I wasn't always a college student. I used to be a street bum, you know. I used to live on the streets. Did that on and off for a lot of years. And spent a lot of time in the sun because of this. So I'm somebody who is very susceptible to skin cancer because of this. I usually try to protect myself. I usually wore a couple of white bandanas, one around my neck to help myself out. But still, a lot of years. I, I ignored the slump at first just because it's, it's in a place I mean, it's under my nose. It's tucked away in this like little corner that doesn't seem to me like it would have ever been exposed to the sun too much. But I can no longer ignore this. As I, as I say to you, as I'm telling you this, it's uh, Wednesday, the 29th or 30th of March. And I believe I'm going to go in on Monday. And have myself checked out. So I'm going to ask for your prayers in this in this matter. I'm hoping it's something else, you know. Now the good news is, even if it is a cancer, it is likely something called basal cell carcinoma which can be um, treated and defeated. Basal cell car carcinoma is not usually deadly. But with my past, spending day after day after day in the sun, 
I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't at least somewhat worried about this. So please send some prayers my way. Because I need them at the moment. I hope everybody else out there is having a good week, and I hope you're getting through your your week, and I hope your classes are going well for you and that your workload isn't too much. And This is a very busy time for us students here. And just want to send some love your guys' way too. So with that, I'm going to let you go. This is Ken Hammond signing off for College Faith Radio.